you know, the Silicon Valley part, I'm, I'm going to sound more like a tourist than I'm going to sound <laughs> like a, a startup entrepreneur. I've been just running my business here, but I do the same thing I do in any city. I sit on my laptop and I go to cafes and I write and type and communicate with my team virtually. But, you know, there's nothing that makes that unique in Silicon Valley. I haven't been, uh, you know, looking for funding or, or attending uh, big accelerators or incubators like a lot of people would be doing if they were doing a startup. That's actually one of right. the key distinctions, I think. So uh, you're just living the hard life of an entrepreneur in, a, in cafes and the laptop lifestyle. I feel so sorry for you, man. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire. You're listening to my friend, Ash Roy. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello, everybody. Today, I'd like to invite a very special guest, and that is Yaro Starek. He's the founder of entrepreneursjourney.com, and that is spelled entrepreneurs-journey.com, which he established back in 2005. And he's also the author of Blog Profits Blueprint. Yaro began blogging as a hobby, but he's been doing it professionally since his monthly income exceeded $10,000 a month. He's mentored thousands of other experts, authors, coaches, consultants, speakers, and trainers on how to turn their expertise into a profitable online business. And today, Yaro helps people set up their own blog sales funnel, a system that combines blogging with email marketing to build a platform to sell your own digital training products. So welcome, Yaro. Thanks for having me, Ash. Looking forward to it. Pleasure to have you. So, Yaro, can you give us a brief overview of your blogging journey so far and why the online channel is so important for business today? And I know when we met last time, you were just about to leave for Silicon Valley. So if you could talk a little bit about that and how that's worked out, I'd be very interested to hear about that. Sure. Well, you know, the Silicon Valley part, I'm going to sound more like a tourist than I'm going to sound <laughs> like a, a startup entrepreneur. I've been just running my business here, but I do the same thing I do in any city. I sit on my laptop and I go to cafes and I write and type and communicate with my team virtually. But, you know, there's nothing that makes that unique in Silicon Valley. I haven't been, uh, you know, looking for funding or, or attending uh, big accelerators or incubators like a lot of people would be doing if they were doing a startup. That's actually one of right. the key distinctions, I think. So you're uh, just living the hard life of an entrepreneur in, a, in cafes <laughs> and the laptop lifestyle. I feel so sorry for you, man. <laughs> yeah, well, it's deliberate. You know, there was a plan. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the, I don't have a short version of my story anymore because it's uh, it's turning out to be half my life. You know, I, I'm, I'm 35 now, just about to turn 36, and I've been online since I was 18 with some kind of website and, and making money on the internet since I was 20. So, you know, it's the only thing I've known in terms of a career. And, uh, you know, the, the highlight reel is I, I had a, a hobby website about a card game called Magic the Gathering. That was my first ever taste of running a, a so-called business. I had a little e-commerce store there and I made money from advertising as well. So it was a, a great time to to learn about internet marketing, learn how to get traffic to a website, learn how to sell things on the internet. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had little people buying cards. People would send me uh, dollar bills in the mail to pay for their cards, you know, teenagers and kids mm-hmm. and things like that. And I would send them through Australia Post to send the cards off. So that was that business. And then I moved on to a proofreading business after graduating from university mm-hmm. in Brisbane. And that was my first sort of real business. I like to think of it as a real business because I made enough of a salary. I made a, a full-time income right. from that. Was that was called Better Edit, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. So uh, that was a business that connected a 
proofreader or an editor with a university student. Usually it was an academic, like a professor or a, a, a postgraduate student at a university in Australia. And we connected them to often international students whose English was their second language. So writing papers in English was difficult enough, let alone writing in academic writing. So we kind of had a tutorial slash proofreading service for them. And I was the middleman. I built the website, I did the marketing, and I spent my time forwarding emails between editors and clients and took a cut from that transaction. And that was a really good experience because it was a, a pure lifestyle business. That, that business was the first time I kind of met one of my key goals, which was that, I guess, again, the laptop lifestyle is the phrase I use now as my sort of catchphrase. And that, that was the first time I really tasted it because I, I did need to only spend an hour a day, not all at once often it was you know half an hour in the morning half an hour in the afternoon just making sure the jobs were getting processed and that was it nowadays you'd call that a, a four-hour workweek style business with you know tim tim ferris making that so such a popular phrase and i was doing this that was probably five or six years before tim brought out his book so yes. i understand how how desirable it was I, i've wanted that from the beginning so that was the first business i i tasted it and and really experienced it but it was still not quite right i didn't really want to scale that any further and I had a lot of spare time so I was still kind of lost and confused and trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my time and maybe could I find something that I felt more motivated and passionate about because you know proofreading wasn't a passion outside of setting up the business and that's actually when I came across blogging so it was it was 2004 where someone said to me you should start a blog for your proofreading business to get traffic that's how you get traffic from Google uh, I didn't know what a blog was but I did sort of experiment I looked at other people's blogs and I eventually installed at the time it was called Typepad a software program for blogging and which Seth Godin still uses there you go, right? So it's you know, WordPress as well, and truly taken them over. But that was the first thing I used, and I experimented with writing about proofreading, or at least writing to the the target audience of my proofreading company. And that was very, very boring. I lasted only three months writing about that subject. But I did discover this this sort of enjoyment for, about talking about business. I love talking about being an entrepreneur. I love talking about online business. I love uh, explaining the story of my own business. I love talking about running my card game website, running my proofreading business, sharing what I was thinking, what I was doing, what I was making work in terms of making money, getting traffic, the things we care about as online entrepreneurs. And that blog took off and I started to build an audience that eventually allowed me to make a living that equaled my proofreading business. And because I was really enjoying it, I was loving writing. I was loving this sort of semi-fame you can develop as a, a regular blogger. It was very early days. You know, blogging was, you know, 2005, 2006. Not, people were only just starting to make a living from it. So I was you know, on the cusp of that. And I was also learning about this other world called direct response internet marketing. And that was a bit of a golden era for that as well, because you had guys like John Reese doing his traffic secrets product launch and doing a million dollars in one launch. And then there was guys like Stompernet, Andy Jenkins and Brad Fallon. And then there was Jeff Walker with his product launch formula and Mike Fulsane with Butterfly Marketing and then Rich Sheffrin with Strategic Profits. And these guys were just blowing us away with these campaigns excuse me, where they released free information, they had massive email lists, and they just made a ton of money. I was in incredibly impressed by what could be achieved with essentially just an email list. That, mm. That's basically what they used. So uh, it was natural for me to 
understand that and apply email marketing to my blogging business. So I, that's when I started growing uh, a list to go with my blog, and that really helped me take things to the next level. So using the, the blog and the email list, I started to become essentially an information marketer, a teacher, a trainer. I started teaching other people how to blog. Um, by then, I was already making 10000 a month from my blog through things like advertising and affiliate income. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching everything I'd been doing in the last two years as a blogger and launched a course and then launched another course with my friend Gideon Shalwick. And to cut a long story short, I have since been basically doing the same thing. I, I eventually, in 2007, sold the proofreading business and I'd sold the card game website long before that and I dedicated myself to the, the art of blogging and information marketing and setting up what you would now call a sales funnel as well. So blogging, email marketing and selling digital products and services which is still the, the business I run today and uh, I love it. You know, I, went, mm. I, I found the thing that suits me not just financially but as a, you know, a passion as something I enjoy doing as well. Cool. Well, by the way, I exchanged Facebook messages with, with Gideon Shalwick just yesterday. He was in Sydney. He was here for the Digital Marketer Conference. I believe he was speaking right. at it. So that was pretty cool. There was something else you told me when we met in Sydney a few months ago, which was very interesting. You were doing podcasting before podcasting was a thing. Talk to us a little <laughs> bit about that. I'm very interested to, to hear your story about that. Yeah, I wish I got more credit for this. I tell you what, Ash, because it was, you know, I, I kind of missed the boat on on this in some levels. You were too early. I, you didn't miss I, the boat. Yeah. You, you preempted the boat. I caught the smaller boat and there was this huge boat behind it that I should have been on. <laughs> That's how it feels like. Well, to put things into context, okay, so I started blogging and blogging was going through a wave. So I can't complain because I got to ride the, the blogging wave. And I also learned about podcasting. It was six months later, I started a podcast and it was simple. I had a, what was called an iRiver MP3 player, the competitor to the iPod at the mm-hmm. time. It had a microphone jack on it, a little speaker port you could talk into. And I thought, you know what, let's give this whole podcasting thing a go. And I, I sat next to the Brisbane River and talked for 15 minutes about business things and uploaded the mp3 to my blog and da-da, we're podcasting so right. you know it wasn't um that revolutionary and i enjoyed it and then i think maybe four episodes later i did my first ever interview uh my friend will swain was running a, a small business at the time internet marketing business and we had a conversation about that and that was the start of my interview series which I've, i'm still doing and why, why we say i i kind of missed the boat and I, I, I can't complain. Podcasting was great. It still is great. It was great when I first started it. I, what I've missed was I, I, started, I kind of podcasted sporadically. It was never my main thing. Writing is my main thing. I still think it is. Like I love podcasting. I love doing interviews, but I still enjoy writing the most. Mm. Um, but what I did with my podcast was I kind of did one once a month, sometimes every two months. Sometimes I do two in one month. I certainly didn't stick to a schedule like I did with blogging. I was writing minimum once to twice a week with my blog and podcasting now and then. Um, so I, I benefited from the audio content. I know a lot of people, for example, remember me or, or joined one of my programs because of something they got from a podcast and the mm-hmm. connection that was established there. But what happened was I sort of you know, didn't focus on it. And then around 2010, a big change happened, which you'd probably be well aware of, is that uh, iTunes and the iPhone came along and started supporting podcasting. Mm-hmm. And podcasting became a, an app on the, on the iPhone. I mean, really, it's two things. It's iTunes to begin with. It became the, the directory for podcasting. And there wasn't a directory. You've got to remember when I first started uh. podcasting, all we did was add an MP3 to our blog, 
and that's it. We didn't submit right. it to iTunes. We did get discovered by certain directories that were trying to do what iTunes now does. For example, Odeo. Some people who listen to this who might remember, Odeo was the company that eventually turned into Twitter. Oh. But Odeo was actually a podcasting company. They were trying to do what Google did for um, content, like blog posts, for podcasts. They were trying to index podcasts and distribute the content and sort of become the, you know, the de facto search engine for, for podcast content. But they kind of failed, to put it simply. And, and when they were on their sort of last few months, they started searching for ideas for a pivot of their company. Oh. And some of the guys in the company said, that we've got this micro-blogging tool that you can send messages to each other. Initially, it was through texting, actually, on, on mobile phones. That's how Twitter started. So audio turned to Twitter. But for, for podcasting, that's it. You, you got your traffic from the same way you get traffic to a blog. It was just Google search results. People might subscribe to your RSS feed if they have some kind of... Uh, iPod, um, but you know it was very, very old school. You'd have to connect your iPod to the computer, then the, the podcast would download from your hard drive. It's not like today where you just stream it directly off the internet on your smartphone. So that's the change that happened. iTunes came along, they centralized it, they made the content searchable, easy to subscribe. iTunes was, you know, forced to be installed on your smartphone if you're an Apple user. Mm-hmm. And that meant that all the podcasters who sort of started in 2010 got to ride this wave, you know, all like the John Lee Dumas and Pat Flynn and Lewis Howes, that, that people in my industry anyways, and there's all these other industries. Mm-hmm. And these guys just went from zero to a million downloads in like six months' time. And that's incredible growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of missed that because I didn't really pay attention. I didn't get myself into iTunes straight away. I kind of did it later and I wasn't publishing once a week and John Lee Dumas was once a day. <laughs> so it's a you know, big difference. But I, I love it. Podcasting, I think, is one of the best, probably the second best marketing tool I've ever used outside of blogging itself. John Lee Dumas is actually going to be on the show soon and I'd be very interested to talk to him about his views on podcasting. But I'll tell you what else is happening in terms of podcasting and another disruptive change is a whole lot of cars are rolling off these manufacturing lines with CarPlay installed on them now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things like that with uh, Stitcher Radio and you know SoundCloud and now even with Spotify, you know, including mm-hmm. podcasts. So it, it's just audio. It's, it should make sense, really. I mean, music content has been moving towards these distribution platforms, but spoken word content seems to have been sort of stuck in mm-hmm. this kind of, I don't know, older, older platforms are locked into iTunes and, and it's starting to become more, uh, I guess, and it's going to be like blogging. It's no longer going to be a case of making sure you're on the platform. It's going to be figuring out how to stand out from the thousands of mm. other content podcasts on there like we're dealing with now. Well, I'll tell you another one that's coming out, which is vlogging, and that is Periscope. I don't know if you've heard of it, but people instantaneously broadcast their video online, and that's just blown up, and it, it's owned by Twitter. Yeah, I remember uh, when Meerkat sort of popped up and kind of funny that Meerkat and Periscope both sort of appeared at the same time. I kind of feel sorry for Meerkat because I yeah. think uh, <laughs> having a native platform with Periscope has sort of taken their thunder a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Well, there's a it's, few other Me Too apps coming out. There's one called Nomadcast as well now. And right. there's another one as well. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a few that are cropping up. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I find it amazing how a little tiny shift to the left of something that already <laughs> exists, because we can do this on YouTube. You know, we can broadcast already on YouTube Live, no problem. Right. 
but you go and create an app and you attach to Twitter and suddenly everyone's doing it, but they weren't doing it with their YouTube. You know, it's yeah. like, why? Why does that change? But, you know, that's just the way it is. Let's get back to the conversation about uh, online business. So, sure. So let's talk about why having an online presence is so important today for an entrepreneur. I mean, we already touched on it in terms of podcasts, but let's talk about the online equivalent and more about blogging, which is what you really enjoy and which is what your passion is. How does blogging help a business or an entrepreneur really take their business to the next level? Well, well, the blog itself is the platform. This is the thing I, I tell anyone who wants to do any kind of online marketing, regardless of what type of marketing you want to do or what type of business you currently run, you're going to need a presence that you own. And for most people, that's going to be a blog. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're going to buy a domain name, you're going to set up a website and all my students, for example, all my peers, all the people we've been talking about, they all have a blog as the center point. You might be doing uh, YouTube, you might be doing podcasting, you might be heavily integrated in Facebook, maybe you're doing well, so many things you can do today, you know, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Google+, the SlideShare. But most of these things are used as extensions of the blog as the platform. Great point. So you're bringing people back to the blog, you're producing the podcast, publishing it on the blog. Yes, you're sharing it through iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and, and so forth. You know, you're producing a video and you're putting it on YouTube, but you're also embedding it on your blog. And that's probably where most people are going to see it. And you're probably sending your email list this content too. When I publish a new podcast, I send an email to my hmm. list saying I've got a new podcast. So, you know, it's all integrated. And I like that's why the word platform is the best because what you're basically doing is having a presence, a center point on the internet where you exist, where all your information is, your products are, and all the means of which to subscribe to your content exists. And then some people will find you through a Facebook follow. Some people will find you through a sharing of a podcast. Some people will Google search and come across your blog post. But your entire goal is quite simple, trying to create initial demonstration of value and people experiencing that value through your content, then taking an action and actually subscribing to your content, ideally through an email list. As good as all the other subscription platforms are, whether it's follow on Facebook, follow on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on on iTunes, those things will always, well, I shouldn't say always, but certainly for the near future and have been up to this point, secondary to the power of an email subscription. Email subscription has the highest conversion rate when you go and do promotions. It's a a push mechanism of marketing, not a pull mechanism because people still read their email every day. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily go and download their podcasts every day. They don't read blogs every day. They don't go and necessarily take action on a picture on Instagram every day, but pretty much they're going to check their email every day and probably click links in there. Everyone I know will tell you their conversion rate on email is the highest of any platform they use. Maybe a few people will tell you they're getting better from Facebook ads or something like that, but even then they're usually converting those Facebook ads to email subscribers. So the way I do it is quite simple. It's you have a blog, it's the center point, but it is designed to get people to convert to some kind of segmented email list. So if you have a business you already know the value of a lead. The, the step you might not be aware of, it really depends on how savvy you are with traditional marketing and also specifically with uh, direct response marketing, and that is internet marketing, is the need to nurture a client through content of which to establish a relationship to build the trust necessary for them to reach the point where they're comfortable buying from you. Because most people do not buy from a stranger. It needs to be either a prior recommendation, some sort of long-term brand association that establishes the trust, 
or as I do and most people I know do, we use content to deliver free information first to establish that trust and we do that over and over again and then when the time is right, the potential customer, the prospect, they see you as the person they trust the most. They're ready to buy. They buy from you. Hmm. And that only happens when you have some kind of ongoing relationship through all these different channels, these platforms, usually driven, though, firstly, by the email list. So it doesn't matter whether you're selling plumbing equipment, teaching people how to lose weight, you know, whether you're teaching others how to do social media marketing, or maybe you're selling an alternative healthcare product. Nearly every one of the, well, actually, I think every business model that exists on the internet relies on the same thing, some kind of platform, using those distribution channels to get the attention of people, but then establishing relationships to sell products and services. So if you're doing internet marketing, that's what you're doing. So you have to get good at using those tools. Sure. You know, there were some really great points you made. And something that Chris Garrett said in podcast episode three or four, I think, he said it the same thing in a slightly different way, which really reinforced what you're saying, which is that content marketing is a conversation that happens between the buyer and the seller. And that conversation is going to happen regardless of whether you as an individual seller want to be part of it or not. It was very interesting. He said before someone makes a purchase decision nowadays, they do all their research online. And by the time they interact with your brand, they've already decided on what product they're going to buy. The question is, are they going to buy it from you or the person next door? And that decision is driven largely by the trust that you talked about. And that is built through an ongoing relationship through valuable content and exchange of value through information. So mm. I totally agree with that point. And in my interview with Neil Patel, we talked a bit about branding and we touched on this issue there as well. Your brand is a representation of you. You build your brand through your blog and through the content that you produce. So if you produce good content regularly and reliably and you deliver value to the audience, you are going to be front of mind when it comes to purchase decision time. Right. Yeah, that's the key phrase, I think. There, you know, there's phases to this. There's having people know you exist to begin with. So you know, when someone says, I'm ready to buy and solve this problem in my life, they think, who do I know can help me solve this problem? Or they go, look for answers. Hmm. So unless you're either top of mind, as you said, so you exist already in the conversation as a potential source of information, mm-hmm. or you need to show up when they go do their research as someone that's being reinforced, recommended, has valuable content, whether that's showing up in a search result in Google, getting a podcast shared to someone else about that subject, you know, maybe they, they read an article on a Facebook that was shared or something like that. Somewhere that you get that association with that subject matter. So if you don't, if you don't matter, you never get selected as mm. the person to buy from. So that's sort of phase one. And then maybe you make it into that list of three or four people that they're considering. There'll be these factors that that person then makes the final decision on of who gets the money and who, who they buy from. And those are very subtle things. That'll be simple, like, who do they like the most? It's kind of funny to think about this, especially when it comes to uh, individual marketing like uh, you know, personal branding. Basically, anyone who is uh, selling information products based on their own expertise as a teacher, a speaker, an author, a trainer, a coach, anyone who's doing that, they're pretty much using their personal brand as the, the main selling point. So likability. Do you have resonance? Do you have an affinity with that person? And that's what the customer is trying to experience with mm-hmm. you. And usually is the deciding factor. I actually remember a long, long, long time ago, it wasn't even a podcast. It was a recorded tele-seminar. I think it was Marlon Sanders and another internet marketer. Marlon's a very, very old school internet marketer as well. 
And he was saying that there's really only one thing you need to do as an internet marketer, and that's get the prospect, get your subscribers to like you. That was that the marketing phrase he used, like, mm. which I thought was really interesting because you'd never hear Coca-Cola saying, oh, yeah, we run all these big <laughs> TV ads to make people like us. You know, it's, it's very different. And that's what I love about online marketing. It's you're allowed to be yourself, mm. and that's your, your marketing tool as well, being yourself promoting your personality as a way to connect with another human being in order to sell products and services, which yes. is, I find that very comfortable. Well, it's really funny that you should say Coca-Cola because Chris Garrett from Copyblogger, who I spoke to in that earlier podcast, he actually used Coca-Cola as an anti-case study for <laughs> building the know, like, and trust model through content marketing because from what I've seen, they're quite in-your-face, push marketing, above-the-line kind of marketing content marketing doesn't appear to be at the core of their strategy at the moment. So it'll be very interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah, that's a hard one to, to compare. I mean, I, I remember Rich Sheffern talking about this at one point. There's two types of marketing. There's your big brand uh, saturation style marketing where they just need to be in the face of everyone all the time. But that also requires that their product is available to everyone all the time. And generally speaking, you're also a mass market product. My blogging courses are not a mass market product. <laughs> I'm not going to be putting up billboards in every city. It doesn't make sense. The, the return on investment, the conversion won't be there. But if you have a product like a, a soft drink, it's a lot of human beings that is your potential target market for that. And that's why they have the, the much broader style marketing. And I think, I don't, well, there's no one I've ever worked with who should be considering that kind of marketing. I don't think anyone who's not, you know, a multiple hundred million dollar company even thinks about that style of marketing. It's much more personal. Uh, I think the good question is perhaps the one you're talking about or alluding to is the idea of will the big brands start to go micro. Mm. And that's, I think that's more one of those situations where the, the type of company will decide it. Because I don't mm. think you need to like an individual human being to make the decision to buy a Coke. Mm. But, for example, buying a car, you may. So you might find that the individual Toyota dealer in the neighborhood wants to promote their personal brand as a way to sell more cars from their Toyota franchise. Got it. Now that that's a bigger purchasing decision. It's still a mass market product. They still have big branding budgets, but the the personal touch, the liking of the car dealer might come into it. So, so they would yeah. use it mainly as a differentiation tool for yes. their personal or their individual dealership. Right, correct. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how it all evolves, really, because there are so many disruptive changes happening with mass marketing. I mean, we've got geotagging coming around the corner. It's probably going to become fairly mainstream in the next few years. You know, you'll be walking past shops and your, your phone is going to ping at you and tell you that there is a Coke <laughs> around yeah. the corner for you if that's something you bought in the last two days or whatever. So I'm sure these things will have an effect on how Coca-Cola does their marketing at some point. Okay, you talked about email being the main way of accessing people and I completely agree with you. That is the case today. Leadpages actually launched an SMS tool and I haven't had a chance to follow it in detail, but I wonder how that went. I don't know if you are aware of it. They had an, an SMS alert that they would send and they would use that to send you to a landing page? I mean, I'm, I'm with Entreport and they have both SMS and card in the mail options. Okay. So I can send text messages and I can send basically old school direct mail, but in like a card format. And I can design the cards how I like too. I haven't actually made use of them, but I do think they'd be disruptive only because of the less busy channel. Mm. Obviously, email is a very, very busy channel. And, and ironically enough, our postal mailboxes have become a special place yes. again yes. <laughs> where they never used to be. So I suspect the conversion rate 
would be good. But the one thing that both SMS, SMS less so, and post mail definitely doesn't have this power the EMA does, which is the the ease of integration uh, within mm. the platform. SMS is is closer because yes, you you get it on your phone, and your phone can then open up uh, a browser page, and you know you can click a link in a text message. The problem is you don't use e- uh, text messaging for subscribing to newsletters. Mm-hmm. Right, like I, I can't see this happening any time because it's not a format conducive for the consumption of information. It's purely a dialoguing tool. Right. So you if, mean because of the mobile device? Because of the format, like a text message is not meant to be a five hundred word email. You know what I mean? Like you can't really teach with texting. You, I think you can use it to pull people to something mm. else. What about clicking but, on a link though in an SMS? Like if you just had a teaser and said, you know, check out how to take your business to the next level. Click on this link, and you clicked on it. That would take you to a landing page. And let's say you have one of these phablet phones. Maybe you can consume more content on there. I'm very interested to know, as someone who's a user of Ontreport. What sort of penetration and conversion rates they have using SMS as opposed to email? The only time I've seen it used well is through webinar reminders. I don't think okay. it will ever come close to email because it's not like think about who texts you now and mm. what you permit to go into your text message box. It's very close friends and family. Mm. You're not going to go and subscribe. Like let's say you came to my blog and I'm going to have you subscribe to my how to get your first one thousand visitors to your blog email course. If I said I, I'll send you that through text messaging, it doesn't make sense because you're, you're not going to want those text messages to appear in your text message box. It kind of harkens back to what we talked about before with why is Periscope taking off when you could basically do the same thing already hmm. with YouTube, right? Hmm. A lot of this comes down to what people uh, expect and accept in a media format. Mm-hmm. And they very quickly sort of, it's, I find it quite fascinating why something catches on versus something you know doesn't. Like even recently, I had this experience moving my team away from using Skype text as a way to interact to Slack. So if the listener might not know what Slack is, but it's basically a chatting tool where you can add your, your contractors to it and you can chat to them and it creates a history, an archive of That's all the right. conversations, and you can share pictures and so on. I use and you it can too. do all of that through Skype. Right. But why is Slack better than Skype for that hmm. specific thing? You know, do you have a I, I think because you can upload links more easily, it's quite well integrated with I can do Dropbox. that in Skype though. I can do all that with Skype, yeah. you know, but for some reason, yeah. I mean, I, a lot of it's got to do with positioning because Skype started mm-hmm. as a telephony tool Good point. and yeah. text as a secondary issue. Things, they, they have like, it's almost like positioning baggage. Whatever you mm-hmm. are and, and you're used for in the majority, you're always going to be known for that. And it's very difficult or it's, I shouldn't say difficult, it's easy for something else to come along and just do a slight twist yeah. to what you already do. And you end up being used that way, just as Periscope is now for live video when mm. YouTube didn't, didn't really capture that market. Mm. Just as I don't see text messaging taking away from email, what I think email might eventually get replaced with is whatever format of mainstream communication we switch to in the future. And I, I don't know, you know what's going to be better than a plain text email. Uh, people used to ask me, do I think blogging will one day disappear, get mm. replaced by something else. Mm. And even now they've asked me, is, is blogging dead because there's social media? I mean, yeah, I'm very interested s- to hear the answer to that question myself, actually. What do you think? Do you think blogging is going to disappear? That, the answer to the question is 
the actual format for consumption of content has to change. Mm-hmm. So you think about what what is blogging replaced? What what came before blogs? Books. Like go back before social. Right. Why do we now use blogs instead of books? Because it's more convenient. It's more easily accessible. You know, you can access it on multiple devices. It's portable. Right. So whatever is next has to be superior right. to those things. Yep. You know, the book was inferior. It's physical. You can't interact with it you know virtually throughout the entire planet it's not transferable it's you know it takes physical matter to produce what will be the next level for digital content and i had a good think about that i i was thinking some kind of potentially a virtual reality interface i think the actual interface device with the human being has to change significantly for us to change how we consume content mm. but that being said the fundamental ingredient in a book which is words, is still the fundamental ingredient in a blog. Mm. So I don't know what the next evolution will be because I still think it will use words unless we develop you know, direct neural implants. But there are technologies where, where did I read about this, where they've got people thinking certain thoughts and actually creating results Using technology, so you know, uh, I think with artificial arms and legs and stuff, which doesn't happen through word communication. Right. I don't know the details of it, but I believe that that is not very far away. And also, given all the nanotechnology that is coming around the corner, mm-hmm. who knows? Who knows? I mean, I remember watching one of those made-for-YouTube shows, and it was based in the not-too-distant future. And the internet gets transferred into our eyes, uh, basically. Yes gets projected into our little sort of virtual screen that only we can see through our... It's an implant in our brain, basically. And I thought, that's really interesting. I mean, it's pretty invasive. I don't think <laughs> we're ever going to you know, be open to doing that quickly. But the outcome of that was the tablet, the smartphone, the laptop gets replaced with our eyeballs, essentially. And mm. any surface we look at becomes a screen, kind of like what Google Glass was getting towards. But yes. you know, that, that didn't take off very well. You know, mm. It's interesting. So I don't know. I don't think the format, as long as we continue to communicate with words and you know, there's nothing that's, I don't see anything significantly changing. What's going to happen, as already has happened, is the fragmentation of platforms we use to consume that content. What I do find interesting, though, is throughout all the changes with social media coming along and, and video and podcasting and now with live streaming and webinars and so on, we're still essentially using the website. And you know the mobile app is probably the one major change, but even that's still kind of like an extension of the mm. web. It's still based on that one platform that's here's content produced by other human beings, whether it's written, audio, or visual, and then other human beings are consuming it, choosing whatever device they want. But at the end of the day, it's just one human producing for other humans, and that's mm. it. You know, it hasn't changed from the television to the radio to print to performing on stage, Shakespeare, and so on. It's you know the 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 premise is exactly the same. What an interesting conversation. Let's talk about the most common challenges you've noticed when people get started with developing an online presence and the best way for them to overcome them. If you can talk about some action points, that would be great too. Sure. Well, there's two components I find, especially with the people I teach. The, the, the biggest hurdle for the beginners is uh, isolation of who they serve and being clear about the, the reason why a person wants to solve a problem, what's the emotions behind why they want to solve a problem, understanding that person. I call it true empathy. That's the, mm-hmm. the core concept. And most people don't have a level of understanding of true empathy about their audience 
to the depth required to do this well. Even people who are quite established, you know, even myself, mm-hmm. it's one of those areas that it's a, you can ask this question, but can you ever truly understand another human being? Mm-hmm. No. You, you can continuously gather more and more empathy and understanding and, and in, insight into them, but you'll never actually understand them because they're, mm-hmm. they're unique. But you can get a lot of sort of broad characteristic understanding, especially on an emotional level if you've been through the experience or you have a lot of interaction with them. So if you're already a business owner and you, you know, you've served a lot of people before, you, you kind of get to know where they're coming from. You know what their problem is. You know what they're trying to do, what they're stuck with, what words they use to describe their problems and, and all those conversations going on in their head. If you get that done. That, I think, is half the battle. In fact, it's the harder half. Most people stumble here and they don't realize that's where they're stumbling. It's actually Mm. like a mindset issue. If you get that under control, though, the next step is somewhat easier. You just choose a system for executing that on the internet. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I have what's called the blog sales funnel. So if you know who you serve and what you sell and how you help them, the rest of it is simply a case of creating a, a marketing funnel, a sales funnel. In my case, it's setting up a blog, having an email offer on your blog, whether using, for example, uh, an exit intent pop-up, obviously a nice big opt-in box on the blog itself, and possibly a standalone landing page as well, all offering the same thing. Join my email list and I'll give you this something value for free. I have a free report and I have email courses. Some people do checklists, videos, audios, whatever it is, something of value up front to join my list. And that's important because, yes, it gets them onto your list, but it also helps you segment them. They're telling you, I want more information about this specific issue. I'm that motivated that I'm willing to sign up and go through what you have for me. It's not a casual surfer. It's a somewhat more dedicated lead, as they call it in business term, but a motivated individual. And when you've got them onto the email list, you're continuing that process. That's why it's called a funnel. You're giving them more information. You're helping them to take some steps towards a solution. If you can get them uh, at least some kind of benefit, maybe it's a big problem. You can't solve it all in one go. But if you can help them solve an aspect of it, they're going to trust you. They're going to like you, all those things we talked about before. And that's when you can then present your products as another step forward for more support, more help from you, more, a more deeper relationship. That's a fairly simple system. It's a blog, it's a sequence of emails or some kind of sequence of content you deliver through email mm-hmm. and then a product or a service that you sell. Uh, there's obviously a lot of layers to this. There's upsells and downsells and bundling you can do. Then there's back-end products. So you've got your, your lower-priced front-end products and then your higher-priced back-end products. But essentially the system is really simple. Attract people to your blog convince them to join your email list, the ones who are motivated, and then nurture that relationship and offer them products to further towards them solving the problem. That's the system, as I said, the formula, once you know what you're trying to do for people. And the biggest and most important thing is really understanding your audience and empathizing with them. And one way to do that is to create an empathy map or to interview as many people as you can that you believe fall in that demographic. Yeah, my personal favorite is actually getting people to spend some money on something from you because doing a survey, asking people at a networking event, doing even free coaching, free consulting calls, they're all great research tools. But Mm -hmm. you don't know that someone is actually motivated enough to buy something, which, Mm. let's face it, that's the heart of a business, whether you can make sales, until you say, here's something for sale to help you solve this problem. Do you want to buy it? So I actually encourage 
my members as a final step in the research process. So your initial steps are all those things we talked about, surveys, mm-hmm. conversations. But as a final step, once you've come to an assumption, I believe people are willing to spend money to learn about how to change their diet in order to get rid of acne. That's my assumption. I know I've had acne. I recovered from it by changing my diet. I've helped some people do this. I, I feel confident that this is a market there. Then you say, I will offer 10 coaching calls where I'll help you map out a brand new diet plan. It's $50 for one hour plus I'll give you the diet plan, but I'm only taking 10 people this month. Once they're gone, they're gone. And ideally, try and do at least 10 of those sessions where you get paid to help people solve this problem. Those 10 sessions will be the best research you've ever done. You're not meant to make a living off those 10 sessions, Uh but you're getting a highly qualified customer and the customer will teach you more about your market than any other form of research. So that, I believe, is the best form of research for uh, really refining your market. What a great point, Yarrow. Dan Norris actually talks about it in his book, Seven Day Startup. He says, you don't learn until you launch. I actually just interviewed him last week, and I completely agree with you. A customer behaves and responds differently to somebody who you're working with for free. That is a lesson that I've learned in recent months as well, so I completely agree. Thank you for sharing these fantastic insights. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. How does a listener get in touch with you if they want to contact you or know more about you or your business? The first thing to remember is my, my name, uh, Yaro, Y-A-R-O. It's a lot easier to spell than entrepreneur, so I <laughs> tend to give that out first. If you yeah. just Google Y-A-R-O, there's not a lot of Yaros on the internet, so you can find my blog and my podcast, and most importantly, the Blog Profits Blueprint. You mentioned my report mm-hmm. at the start. You can get that from blogprofitsblueprint.com as well, mm-hmm. uh, and that pretty much outlines the entire process of creating a, a sales funnel, so setting up a blog, an email list, and then selling your own digital products and services, which is what I focus all my teaching on and you know what I work with students on as well. So that's a great 88-page introduction to that world. Wow. Okay. Definitely. So they can either Google Yarrow or go to blogprofitsblueprint.com. Correct. Cool. And are there any books you recommend, books that have most influenced you? I don't believe in studying anything unless you actually need to solve that problem now. Okay. Uh, and and that, you know, to distinguish that, the studying to stay abreast of your industry, which it's almost like education for the sake of entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not there for you to actually fix something that's broken. It's just knowledge. It's information. I don't think it becomes a value until you actually use it. Uh, you know, it's great to have conversations about mm-hmm. it. It's kind of what we might call our hobby if, if, if our business is also what we love doing. Mm-hmm. But I read books or in particular, I listen to audiobooks and I get courses. You know, I'll buy the $1,000 course when I'm at the point where I'm going to execute on what I learn. So mm-hmm. I only get that then. I read a lot of audio, autobiographies and that's not to solve a problem. That's because I love to hear about entrepreneurs. So over the years, like just recently, I finished the one on how Groupon got started. Uh, last couple of years, I finished on Twitter, Google, uh, how some older companies like eBay. I recently finished the one on how Jeff Bezos and Amazon got started. Mm-hmm. I love those kind of stories as well as books on other sort of non-online businesses. I've read about the Hershey store and Starbucks mm-hmm. because I like chocolate and I also <laughs> spend a lot of time in Starbucks. So, you know, I found it interesting reading about how those companies got going. And it's it's so insightful to learn about what those 
specific entrepreneurs do to get leverage. For me, it's what's the thing that takes them from just having a nice small business to being national multi-million customer businesses. That's something very special and very unique. So I enjoy that. But those books aren't there to solve problems. They help me generate ideas. Sure, I can write blog posts about them. The eBay book did eventually lead to my proofreading company on some level. But really, for example, I was getting my own business sort of restarted about three years ago, I was really diving into sales funnels. I said, you know what, I need to refresh myself on sales funnels. And Todd Brown just happened to recently release a sales funnel course. And he was heavily recommended by Rich Sheffrin from Strategic Profits. And I had taken a Rich Sheffrin course, a $5,000 mentoring program many, many years ago, back in 2007 or eight. So I trusted Rich and Rich had recommended Todd. Todd actually did the funnels for Strategic Profits. So I thought, you know what, I'll listen to one of Todd's webinars, liked what he had to say, and I bought his $1,000 course in preparation for me to create my funnel, which I've been working on myself for the last three years. So for me, that was my current problem, and it made sense to buy information at that point. You know, if you don't have to solve problems, don't buy courses and books on those problems. If you're looking for just general advice and education, you know, I when I started, I read things like the 80-20 rule. That was helpful when I was younger. Obviously, it's a bit like a almost like too common nowadays. But mm-hmm. if you've never studied the A20 rule, that's certainly worth diving into. Uh, Richard Koch has a lot of books mm-hmm. on that. And I read lots of things like The One Millionaire, The Richest Man in Babylon, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. You know, those are good mm-hmm. general motivation advice. I'm a new entrepreneur type books. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you have to take action. And that's when things get a whole lot more granular. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, you need to figure out, let's say, blogging, you know, you take my stuff. If you want to figure out, Facebook advertising, maybe you go take Amy Porterfield stuff. If you want to figure out podcasting, jump on you know, John Lee Dumas' stuff. Mm-hmm. But you only should do that when you're ready to execute on that information because there's nothing worse than buying a $1,000 course or you know, attending some sort of $5,000 mentoring program and then saying, you know what, I learned a lot, but then you don't go and do anything. You don't apply it, absolutely. Fair enough. Well, thank you very much for being on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch and if there's any other opportunities to speak, I would love to have you back. I would love to do that, Ash. That'd be fun. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comments section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today?